The scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're going to uh, begin the reading at verse 19. Uh, John 20, verse 19. Now, at verse 19, we have an account of the evening of Easter Day. And then it it follows with the second scene beginning at verse uh, 26, eight days later. That would be the the next Sunday. So we have uh, two scenes here, one happening on the evening of Easter and one happening eight days later. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us. We pray that you will open our minds and open our hearts so that we might not only uh, understand your word, but receive it in faith so that we might be uh, further transformed to live on earth for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, let us hear the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and to his name be all praise, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What would you say to the person who says you couldn't really? possibly, honestly, believe 
that Jesus was literally raised from the dead, what rational thinking person could really believe such a thing? What would you say? Well, you might say to that person, have you ever read the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John? What a gift we have here in the 20th chapter of John. What a gift we have in the rather embarrassing honesty, we might say brutal honesty, of the Gospels. Now, can't you just imagine, and what I'm about to say is purely imaginary. It is purely imaginary for the fun of it, if you will. Purely imaginary, but, but, but can't you imagine the Apostle Thomas saying to the Apostle John, Oh, please, please, John, don't put that in there. Do you have to put that in there? And I imagine that John, in his gentle and wise way, would have said, Yes, Thomas, it's very important that I put that in there. Brother Thomas, though it may be very humiliating to you now, in the future, you will be a spiritual hero to millions of those who will believe because of your doubt. There he is. And what a gift he is. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. What do I mean? Well, here's the point. It is often said that since the Bible is an ancient book written in pre-scientific times for pre-scientific people who were inclined to believe in such supposedly mythological miracles such as virgin births and bodily resurrections, that therefore the Bible is irrelevant to us today who live in a world of modern scientific enlightenment. Now mind you, that kind of statement is made by people who pride themselves on being modern rationalist, enlightenment intellectuals. The problem is that that argument is illogical and irrational. It doesn't square with the facts as we have them. Exhibit A is doubting Thomas himself. There he is, if you will, a thoroughly modern person an enlightenment rationalist, a man way ahead of his times, a scientist, if you please, insisting upon empirical evidence perceived and substantiated by the senses. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not Believe it. There he is in the first century in Jerusalem within the first week after Jesus' death. Fully convinced of the reality of Jesus' death, 
not a believer in Jesus' resurrection, not easily inclined to believe or to accept such things on blind faith. Note also that Thomas did not accept the testimony of even his closest, most trusted friends, but rather demanded empirical evidence of Jesus' resurrection, evidence which he did not expect to find. Thank the Lord for Thomas, the scientific intellectual of the first century. But of course, Thomas wasn't the only one who doubted. All four of the Gospels tell us that the the disciples in general had their doubts. None of the disciples expected Jesus to rise from the dead. And when they first heard the news of the resurrection, none of the disciples believed it. Luke tells us that when the women first told the apostles the news of the resurrection, the apostles did not believe because it sounded like nonsense, an idle tale. Now, it's true that First century men and women did not know everything that we now know about the universe. But they did know about death, its reality and its finality. They were not primitive, superstitious fools. And the so-called modern skepticism or doubt about Jesus' resurrection is not really modern at all. There's nothing new about it. It does not arise from modern scientific knowledge or from insights gained by rational inquiry. Skepticism and doubt about Jesus' bodily resurrection immediately arose in the first century, even in the minds of those who had loved him and followed him and placed their hope in him. And so you see, this passage is a great encouragement to our faith. The first century apostles had a very realistic understanding of Jesus' death. And only the reality of his bodily resurrection could change their minds and convince them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus' appearances to his apostles confirmed the reality of his resurrection. He wanted them to know that it wasn't their imagination. It wasn't a mystical vision. It wasn't a delusory apparition. He wanted them to know and be sure that he had, in fact, risen from the dead, the true Messiah of Israel, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sin bearer, the death conqueror. He wanted them to know and to be sure that he was who he said he was and that he had accomplished all that he had set out. To accomplish. He wanted them to know and to be sure that he was completely worthy of their absolute allegiance, their obedience, their trust, and even their worship. All of that applies to us as well. The apostolic witness of the scriptures grounds our faith in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. We have the historical record of honest doubts being wiped away by convincing proofs. Honest doubts being wiped away by convincing proofs. But there's something else to be learned from this passage, which is of particular importance to us today. The Gospels of John and Luke clearly tell us that Jesus' bodily resurrection was not merely a resuscitation of his physical body so that he, he merely, merely regained physical life. His resurrected body was, yes, the same body in which he had lived on earth. But after his resurrection, 
It was also of a different nature. It was of a supernatural nature. Jesus appeared to his disciples when they were gathered together behind locked doors. John tells us, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Luke tells us that on the afternoon of the resurrection day, Jesus walked along the road to Emmaus with two people who had hoped, had hoped, that he was the Messiah. But they didn't recognize who Jesus was because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus carried on a conversation with them, but still they did not recognize him. But when Jesus came into their house and sat at their table, Luke tells us he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. So Jesus' resurrection body had a miraculous supernatural nature to it. But why would Jesus suddenly appear in these surprising ways and then just as suddenly disappear? What was he doing? In these sudden appearances and disappearances, Jesus was preparing his apostles for the time when they would no longer be able to see him physically. He was teaching and proving to his disciples that he would be with them always, even though they would not be able to see him. And, and, and that's the application for us. We cannot see the Lord physically present with us. But nonetheless, we have the promise that he is with us. And this is precisely what he was teaching the apostles, after his resurrection, with these sudden appearances and sudden disappearances. Look again at this passage from John. On the night of the first Easter, the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors. Jesus came and stood among them. He appeared miraculously. He made himself visible. He showed them his hands and his side. John tells us, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. But Thomas was not with them. On that evening. And when the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, Thomas declared, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Well, then John tells us one week later, the next Sunday, the disciples were again behind locked doors and Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus appeared to them in the room. And he said to Thomas, get that, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us, doesn't it? It tells us that Jesus had heard Thomas's doubtful declaration. Think about it. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus had been there, though not visible, when Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks and put my hand in his side, Jesus had been there. 
though not visible. Jesus heard what Thomas said. And you see, by answering Thomas's doubts directly, he was showing not only Thomas, but all of the disciples that he was with them and that he would always be with them even when they could not see him. That's the point. The divine nature of Jesus is omnipresent, present in all times, at all places. The divine nature of Jesus is omniscient, all-knowing. Jesus was simply demonstrating to the apostles that as the risen Lord, he would be with them always and everywhere, even though he would not be visible to them. And here's what we need to see. What Jesus was teaching the apostles applies to us and supports our faith. Jesus confirmed the reality of his resurrection by his visible appearances to the apostles. And we have that historical record. That historical record supports our faith. But furthermore, we have the record that Jesus was preparing his apostles for the time when they would not be able to see him. And that applies to us. Because we do not see Jesus with our physical eyes. But you see, our faith in Christ is based not only on the historical record, but also on our personal experience of Christ's presence in our lives. These, these events in the life of the apostles were really meant for our benefit. As Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In this encounter with Thomas, Jesus spoke of those who would believe in him even though they would not see him physically. He was speaking of you and me and all those throughout history who would come to believe in him as the risen Lord. Even within the first century, the apostles were encouraging believers who had never seen Jesus. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So you see, even, even in the first century, the apostles in their teaching were teaching those who had not seen Jesus and yet believed in him. Now, how does that happen? How does it happen that those who have not seen believe? How does the blessing of faith come? It comes by the working of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. Still today, by the power of the Spirit, by the word of the gospel, Jesus Christ makes himself known to us, enabling us to see with the eyes of faith, enlightening the eyes of our hearts and opening our minds to the reality of his living presence with us at all times, and in all places. So this is a great encouragement to us all. Let it not, let it not suffice for us merely to have the, 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 the historical intellectual record of Jesus' appearance. Let us seek to see him by faith and ask the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts so that we might perceive his presence with us at all times and in all places. This is a great encouragement to us in a variety of ways. It's a great encouragement to us in prayer. 
in the assurance that the risen Lord is as near to us as our own heartbeat. It's a great encouragement to us in our daily life in the assurance that His care, His strength, His guidance, His wisdom are readily available to us if we will but call upon Him and be willing to yield our lives to Him. It's a great encouragement to us to resist temptation and to follow the way of righteousness in the knowledge that the Lord is with us to deliver us from evil. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Christ is risen and Christ is with us. Though we cannot see him with our eyes, we see him by faith as he daily provides for us, protects us, and empowers us to live for his glory. And when we see Jesus by faith, the result is the same. It's the same as when Thomas saw him with his physical eyes. When Thomas realized that he was in the presence of Jesus risen from the dead. When Thomas saw the nail prints, the wound of the spear. When Thomas realized that Jesus had heard his declarations of doubt. And now was there to call him into a life of faith. Then Jesus fell down and exclaimed, my Lord and my God. We have to understand the significance of Thomas' words. For a first century Jew to refer to another man as my God would be utter blasphemy if it were not true. John the Apostle himself never would have recorded those words of Thomas for future generations to read if he himself did not believe them to be true. The Apostle's faced their doubts. They came face to face with Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And because they came face to face with him, the first Christians were convinced that Jesus was no mere man, but the man. The man in whom they came face to face with the invisible, eternal God. That's the significance of Thomas's confession of faith. My Lord and my God. Jesus is the man in whom we see the invisible God. Now, we today, 2,000 years after the cross and resurrection, we, perhaps most of us, have lived most of our lives as Christians. We may take it for granted that we affirm the deity of Christ, but we should never take that for granted, especially not these days. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals him to be the only hope for humanity, the only Savior of sinners, the only Lord of heaven and earth. He and he alone is the one whom we may rightly worship together with the Father and the Holy Spirit as very God of very God. The world considers that to be blasphemy, but it's not. The unbelieving world considers it to be an unacceptable blasphemy for us to claim Jesus Christ as God. But indeed, this is the true expression of saving faith. John tells us 
That he wrote these things. He wrote his gospel. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the whole point of the gospel. To give life to dying men and women. Men and women who are dying in sin. John knew that he was writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the whole world, for the sake of you and me here today, for the sake of those who would never see Jesus physically in our lifetime. His gospel presents to us convincing proofs that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world, who died on the cross, and who rose again so that you and I might have life eternal. And I want to point out this one last point in the hope that you will lay hold of it in faith and be really strengthened and encouraged by it. When Jesus showed himself to the apostles in order to prove that it was in fact him, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. The one whom we proclaim to be our Lord and our God, the one who is risen from the dead, still bears the marks, the wounds of his suffering for us. Even in his resurrected body, he bears the marks of his suffering for you and for me. And those wounds in his resurrected body declare that those who believe in him have been bought and paid for in full. The marks of his wounds are the marks of your eternal salvation. He has engraven you, your name, on the palm of his hands. And they stand forever in heaven as the eternal testimony that your sins have been atoned for, your guilt has been cleansed, and you are claimed as His very own. It also is a sign to us that He has not forgotten what it is like to suffer in this world. He has not forgotten what it is like to suffer. He suffered the injustice and the hatred of this world. He suffered the humiliation and the shame of the cross. He suffered the curse of death under the condemnation of the world's guilt heaped upon him. He suffered everything that you can and could and will ever suffer in this world. All your pain, all your sorrow, all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame was laid upon Him on the cross so that you need not bear it any longer, so that you might not perish but have everlasting life. And He bears those wounds today. But those wounds of suffering and death are now the symbols of victory and salvation and life and healing eternal. For all who believe in him. Believe that. Believe it. And live it out. The rest of your life. 
Just as his death was real, his resurrection was real, his victory over sin and death was real, and so his power today is real, his presence with us today is real, and his call to faith, his call to you to believe and to keep on believing is real. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is with us though we cannot see him. Let us fall down and worship him saying, my Lord and my God. Let us arise and follow him in faith saying, my Lord and my God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of the gospel which gives us life in Jesus Christ We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would take hold of our hearts and renew our minds and strengthen our souls and grant us grace that we may live as those who follow a risen, victorious Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.